Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Thank you for that wonderful and lovely introduction, I must say. This is episode 16 of the Sample Chapter Podcast, and I am your host, thriller author Jason A. Meiske. Man, what a week it's been so far. For me, on my personal side, my uh, proof copy arrived of the paperback of my, my first novel, Nine Mile Bridge. The Kindle version has been out for a few weeks, but to get to hold your book in your hands, if there's any aspiring authors out there, can I can just tell you that feeling, like I kind of shed a tear <laughs> when I got to uh, you know pull it out of the bag and, and looked at it and, and it turned out, you know, it turned out not bad. It turned out like it, it looked pretty good. Uh, there's a few edits I got to do, but uh, yeah, it's going to be ready here pretty quick, and I'm going to be able to you know click that button on Amazon and make the paperback ready to go. What can I say? It's been a fun week. I'm having a blast doing this show every week. I'm having a, a blast uh, with my book, and uh, you know, life is good. Uh, enough about me. Want to thank Podcast Garden for being the host site of this show. Uh, head on over to Podcast Garden and catch yourself a couple of, there's a bunch of shows on there actually. Been listening to a few new ones myself recently and that, that place is just a lot of fun. If you're interested in doing your own show, you can do so for free. So podcastgarden.com is the place to go and check it out. I also want to thank you, Storall of Warrensburg, Missouri. They are the premier self-storage facility. Uh, they offer a whole range of sizes in climate control and non-climate control. They also have broken ground on some new units, uh, some new buildings that are going up at one of their original facilities. They have two sites in the Warrensburg area. So make sure you go on to ustoral.net and check it out. The letter U-S-T-O-R-A-L-L.net. My guest this week is none other than Kevin Tomlinson, the man, the myth, the legend, the man with the velvety voice. <laughs> uh, he does have a nice voice. I think you're gonna. I think I would agree. Uh, yeah, he 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 made a little little jokey reference to uh, people like his voice, and you know what? They're right. I mean, he does have a very good voice. He is the voice of his own podcast, the Word Slinger podcast, that comes on weekly, talking to. You know, authors, and, and not just authors, but entertainers, and uh, it's a very good show. I really enjoy it, and I, I think you would enjoy it as well. You know, the best way to put it is Kevin is the, the voice of indie publishing. I don't know if it's really even fair to say that he stumbled into this years ago, but, uh, you know, he just kind of, he found a niche, and he grabbed it with both hands and took off, and, uh, you know, he, he spotted opportunities when they were there, and good for him. You know, he's really making something out of this. As an author, an indie author myself, I'm very well aware of who he is and what he's done. And, you know, I'm excited that I got to have him on my show. And I kind of fanboyed out a little bit. I was just listening to him and listening to, you know, the things we were talking about. And, <laughs> you know, each week when I'm doing my introductions before the author starts reading their chapter, it's just more professional for me to say, you know, and now... Kevin Tomlinson reading from his book, Girl in the Mayan Tomb. Well, I totally blanked on it. <laughs> but thankfully, Kevin is such a professional. Uh, you know, right after I, I mentioned uh, that you know he was about to read, he took over from there for me, ever the pro, and, and filled it in. Kevin was great. Uh, he's around 40 books that he's written. 
among those are his series with Sawyer Jackson, Dan Kotler, uh, The Citadel. He is a best-selling thriller and sci-fi fantasy author. And, you know, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time because, you know, we he, we have a long conversation and his chapter is fascinating, to say the least. He, he does a chapter from one of his Dan Kotler books, and it's a in the vein of Indiana Jones. And, man, that's, that kind of stuff is just right up my alley. I was enthralled the whole time, so so I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun listening to him and a lot of fun getting to talk to him. And I just really appreciated that uh, Kevin took time out of his day to uh, come on to our show and uh, talk to us and, and uh, read a chapter to you guys. And let's get on over and say hello to Kevin Tomlinson. Listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. My guest this week is, man, a a, a name among names. Uh, I have Kevin Tumlinson with me. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm I'm, I'm happy to be a name among names. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, certainly you are somebody I've been picking up on for for quite a while, listening to you on Creative Writing Career, and then uh, of course with the uh, Wordslinger podcast, uh, following that along for a while, and uh, yeah, I'm just I, this is a real thrill for me to get to talk to you. Oh man, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, who are you? What do you write? And um, right. what do you like? To do? Uh, <laughs> I am my uh, I'm a best-selling and award-winning thriller author. Um, I write currently. I, I I started I started my writing career with uh, science fiction and fantasy and. Um, I did okay with that, but I, I switched uh, back in 2016 to writing thrillers, uh, and I write archaeological thrillers right now. Uh, and my series is the uh, it's the Dan Kotler archaeological thrillers. Uh, I really enjoyed that. It's it's been uh, kind of life changing for me to to switch to that genre and write those those books. Um, and aside from that, I am the host of the Wordslinger podcast which uh, is primarily aimed at indie authors and the indie author community. And I am the director of marketing for draft to digital uh, when we're all about helping authors um, convert their manuscripts and distribute them online worldwide and get support and help the whole way. So that's, that's, that's the short version of uh, Kevin's bio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, it's, it's anywhere. I think pretty much if you look online for, author help i think your name pops up oh well, that's good to know yeah <laughs> i'll take that i'm i've been i've been called the voice of indie publishing uh, mm-hmm. because i my um well, apparently i have a nice voice and i i do appreciate when people say that uh but i also um i i'm on a lot of podcasts i show up everywhere i'm like a bad penny you know i always turn up um and because of the Word Slinger podcast, of course. So, you know, I'm glad, I'm happy, I'm thrilled, honored even to be known as, as uh, you know, someone who's who's known for helping indie authors. That's definitely something I aspire to. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the things I'm hoping for is uh, anybody that's listening, if you're interested in writing, by all means write. And then once they get that yeah. book out there, then please get a hold of me and I'll, you know, put you on the show, that kind of thing. There you so, go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very few shows do what you're doing, actually. So uh, they're, you're somewhat unique in the space. Everyone's always looking for that that uh, 
that sort of magic bullet too. Um, a way to, you know, the whole idea of promoting someone's uh, actual fiction. Um, mm-hmm. So you'd have to be aimed more at the reader than the author. And a lot of us start podcasts and we're all aimed at authors. Uh, it's just sort of a hazard of the business. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, Dan Kotler, the archaeological yeah. series. Yeah. So originally I was dared to write a thriller uh, by my, my good friend and, and occasional writing partner, Nick Thacker, who is a thriller writer and very good in his own right. He's got his Harvey Bennett thrillers are, are pretty amazing. He's got some other work out there. Uh, and he and I co-authored a couple of works, uh, two or three books together. And he dared me while we were on air um, to write a thriller. And I took that dare and I, I, I will admit to kind of playing with the idea a little, um, not taking it entirely seriously. Cause I didn't think that would be my genre. Uh, but then that book ended up winning some awards and, uh, becoming a bestseller and making a whole lot of money. And I thought, well, I, I like money. Um, so I uh, started writing and what's been great about it. Uh, truly fun for me. I mean, it's, it, it harkens back to all those stories I used to love growing up and all the books I've loved uh, throughout my life um, and films like Indiana Jones and uh, National Treasure and things like that. This sort of uh, this idea of a of, you know, hidden little mysteries and treasures throughout history uh, being revealed by this smart, you know, uh, active guy. Um, my he's been compared quite a bit to Indiana Jones and also to uh, uh, Dan Brown's uh, lead character in the in the uh, Da Vinci Code, oh, yeah. uh, uh, Robert Langdon. Yeah. Um, he's been compared to those characters quite a bit, and uh, and I can totally see the Robert Langdon bit. He is an archaeologist. Uh, he's also I've been criticized for this, and uh, I think it's funny. But he's a he has uh, multiple PhDs. He's he has a he has his PhD in uh, anthropology, but also in quantum physics. And he's you know basically he's a character who's on who's in search of what it means to be human. And along the way, uh, he gets into lots of trouble and uh, <laughs> has to use his smarts uh, to get out of it. So. A lot of the stories revolve around what I call misplaced history, uh, which is uh, so Dan has an FBI partner uh, in a brand new division of the FBI called Historic Crimes, and they get some uh, historic based crime to solve. You know, a terrorist attack, uh, you know, in the very first book in the Quayle Medallion, that's the first book, um, there's a there is a terrorist attack and there is an abduction um, that turn out to be tied together and, um, it's all tied in with the discovery of Vikings, uh, in Colorado, oh, wow. <laughs> Viking settlement in Colorado. Uh, so, you know, there's little things like that misplaced history, the kind of thing that this archeologist would be interested in. And then I tied into some contemporary threat or, or danger. And, uh, that's how we get our FBI agent involved and, uh, it's, it's just been a lot of fun. If you like movies like National Treasure, you would probably enjoy this. Um, uh-huh. They've been compared to Da Vinci Code and, and the Dan Brown books, um, sometimes favorably, sometimes not favorably. Uh, but I'm okay with that. I, I'm okay with the National Treasure badge. I'm all right with that. <laughs> <laughs> the books seem to be very visual then, based on almost like reading a uh, or watching a movie script in book form. 
I kind of think of them that way. You know, they're very, I, I they're also kind of heady, uh, intellectual, uh, because I, there is a lot of dialogue, uh, discussing things and no one's oddly, I always thought people would criticize me for that, but I, I like to dig in and explore concepts before I get into action. And I do tend to, I'll lace action throughout, but you know, you may be a good six or seven chapters in before you really start seeing a major action scene. Because I want to set up, I want some tension to build. Yeah. But I also want the, I, I'm telling stories that my specific reader is going to love. You know, the stories that involve a little bit of history, some actual history, and also some, you know, occasionally fictional history. But, uh, for the most part, I draw these stories from real world history and events. The current one, The Girl in the Mayan Tomb, draws on this, you know, uh, at its heart, I used as inspiration the story of this kid who found a, a lost Mayan city using uh, Google Earth and some star maps. Um, and, you, you know, from his bedroom, <laughs> right. you know, he's like an 11 year old kid who discovered a lost Mayan city. So I have a, I don't reference that kid specifically. I, I fictionalized the events surrounding that and incorporated it into the book. But, you know, so these things are not there. Although this is fiction, they're, they're plausible. They're largely plausible. And I lace my stories with actual historic events and historic data and, you know, some uh, tidbits of anthropology, you know, the sorts of things that I read and dig up and, and am fascinated by. So mm-hmm. there's a lot in it. I and mean, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely aimed at a specific kind of reader. Who yeah. you know is looking for adventure that engages their brain? <laughs> so well, it, sound, it sounds amazing. It sounds really cool. This is, I think, that is really like right up my alley. At least uh, you know something where you've got a real world, but something fantastic is happening uh, right. within it. And uh, I, I remember reading uh, the first time I read um, Robert McKevin's The Wolf Sour. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Just the idea of a you know, it's a spy thriller in World War II, and oh, by the way, the spy is a uh, Secret Service agent, is a werewolf. So, yeah. <laughs> and I that's just very thought, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. that's awesome. Sort of a paranormal thriller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's uh, yeah, I love this kind of stuff. See, I'm, I'm definitely gonna have to uh, pick up some of these uh, now. Oh, good. How do you like to build your characters? What do you think makes a, an interesting character? You know, good characters. Um, you know, they have flaws and they have strengths. Good characters are, <laughs> it's a little hard to narrow that down, I think. A, a good a good character is somebody that you, you don't have to describe physically in order for the reader to, to be able to picture them. Meaning um, the, that I use a lot of dialogue cues and a lot of, uh, you know, I, I describe more of, of the characters, sort of the, their style, the way they interact with people, the their mannerisms. I describe that sort of thing rather than physical attributes of the character. I, I have not once, as far as I can recall, I have not once told anyone what Dan Cotler's hair color was, for example, or what color his eyes are. Now, if that became important to the story in some way, I would totally do that. Uh, but I, so far, I haven't even, you know, told anyone what his race is. Oh. Now, I, I do have characters that I've described. Uh, one character in, in particular, her name is Liz Ludlam. She is a, uh, a forensic anthropologist. She's basically, she's a forensic scientist. There's hints of a possible love relationship brewing uh, with her and Cotler. But the I do describe her as being African-American and, and quite beautiful. I did that mostly to distinguish her from other female characters. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Uh, so, yeah, to me, what makes a good character is how they interact with the other characters. If their interactions are memorable and engaging, then, you know, you've got a winner. There's a character named Sarge. He's in this book, and I'll actually, he's in the chapter I'm going to read. Um, he's rough. He's a gruff guy, you know, grumbly, growly voice, you know. And I have physically described him because he just, he's got these odd characters, like red-haired, handlebar mustache, you know, and a uh, cigar-chopping guy. And he's fun, you know, and he's a lot of fun to, to see on the page. Uh, I've had readers literally uh, write to me to tell me he's their, their favorite character in the series. Uh, and they love that I brought him back from the first book into this book. He, he made his first appearance in book one. And, you know, I haven't heard from him since, but he, he you know, he shows up in, in uh, book four now as a, uh, you know, a supporting character. And he's, the reaction was, was just huge. So things like that. There's, there's an undercurrent of, you know, the, I tell the stories through the interactions of the characters and the, the, not just their interactions with each other, but the way they interact with their environment and the scenarios, the situations that are happening. Yeah. Uh, so they're very character driven stories. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So now, have you have you always wanted to write? Have you always written? Oh yeah, man. Since day one. I mean, since so, so I uh, my running gag. It's 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 half gag, but it is true. I wrote my first book when I was five years old, <laughs> and I, I wrote it in one of those big chief notepads uh, with this you know big fat you know practice pencil. Uh, uh, yep. And. Uh, you know, ever since I learned to form words on the page, uh, I started using that to tell stories. And I spent uh, all my all my life, really, I spent my entire life talking about, dreaming about, talking about, swearing that I would be a writer one day. All the while, actually writing and never giving myself credit for it. Um, you know, I got into, I've had a variety of careers. I've had a plethora of careers. Uh, <laughs> most of them revolved around writing, uh, but not all of them. I, you know, I was an engineer for a while. I worked in radio and film and TV. The radio, film and TV, all the media stuff. You know, there was a huge writing component in that. Yeah. You know, I, but I've done other things in my career that that did not directly connect with writing. But there was always the writing. It was always there. Yeah. So yeah, that was the, the the writing was the only thing I ever said I wanted to do. And and the funny thing is I did it for years as a, like a copywriter and that sort of thing. I always said I'll, I'm going to do this this thing until I get rich or something, and so that I can write full time. Never quite connecting to the fact that if I just started writing, you know, I'd get to <laughs> to the point where I was writing full time a lot faster. You know? Yeah. So, but I didn't really. I had written. I'd written books. I had even gotten a, a contract for a book. Uh, through a traditional publisher, but I really didn't publish until 2008. And then at that point, um, you know, I self-published at that point. I, I had a previously had a, a traditional contract and it just went really sideways and uh, I managed to get it back. I lost the rights to the book for, for a time. And uh, so I just wrote something else entirely and, you know, it, it did well, didn't do as well as I thought it was going to do. Um, but it started, it started the process. It was the, it was that, you know, little pebble at the top of the hill. I mean, it was, you know, yeah. it started picking up steam as it yeah. went down and started carrying the rest of the mountain with it. So, you know, that's, that's where I am now and the momentum is still going. So I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny how those things that, that can kick in. That's uh, what I've, I've told before is for me, it's, I've always dabbled, but never 
got the the drive until mm-hmm. my first grandchild was born, and that finally gave me the kick in the pants to hey, you know, you're getting older, you need to get busy, and uh, ever right. since then it's just like I've been it's been on. So that's that it's that line from uh, Shawshank, right, where it says <laughs> get get busy living or get busy get dying. Busy. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember? Uh, do you remember what that story was when you were five? Uh, it was the story of a of a young Kevin Tomlinson who is happily uh, walking along in the woods when he finds a young boy who is so poor that he doesn't even have clothes and is sitting naked on a log, and uh, young Kevin takes him in and gives him clothes and gives him food and uh, helps him to have a happy life, and that was. Uh, that was it. That was uh, ah, the great. breadth and width of the of the tale. So yeah, uh, well, that's much more creative than mine. I did a I did a, uh, <laughs> I did a uh, shot for shot copy of uh, Grover's The Monster at the end of this book. So <laughs> oh okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, that was last year. No, so no, that was when I was like four or five. <laughs> so what uh, what are you working on now? What's coming up for uh, for Kevin? I've got a new. Um, Dan Kotler book, the fifth in this series coming up. Um, it got it got somewhat derailed by us moving over the past few months, uh, but I'm back on track. I'm, I'm knocking the words out each day again. Uh, it'll be called The Antarctic Forgery, uh, and that, it's going to be book five in my Dan Kotler thrillers. Um, and I'm referencing those book numbers, but I, I wrote these purposefully so that you didn't have to read one through five uh, you could you could pick up any one of these at any point and, and enjoy the stories so uh but this book actually pays off some stuff that i i laid the groundwork for over the past two books so i'm really excited actually the past three books and i'm very excited to see how the uh reader reaction to it it follows quite pretty quickly on the heels of of uh girl in the mind tune uh, and some of the events of that book directly impact this one but yeah, it's 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 fun. I, I've got some other stuff uh, on the board. I'm gonna do a rewrite of of. So I wrote a book called Evergreen, which is which is actually a supernatural thriller of of a sort. Uh, it's about a guy who actually has special abilities. Uh, he can if he touches someone, he can actually absorb everything they know, including all their skills, uh, their memories, and everything, uh, without them even realizing it. And he holds on to that information for 30 minutes. So there's a lot, there's some interesting things you can do with that, I've discovered. So I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna do a rewrite of that book to fix some errors. I, I wrote that book in a single day. It was a 60,000 word novel. And I had challenged myself to write it in a single day. So there are some flaws. Uh, but overall, whenever anyone reads the book, they really enjoy it. So I thought I would do that justice, uh, get it nice and polished, and uh, perhaps write a sequel to it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. And and before we get into the, the, the book, I mean, you've also got your Sawyer Jackson series and Citadel. Uh, let yeah. the readers know a little bit about your other books. Yeah. So Citadel was the first series I published. It's science fiction, very much in the vein of like Star Trek, the next generation, kind of that sort of hopeful sci-fi with, with a touch of steampunk thrown in. Very to me that, that the birth of that series was that uh, my brother-in-law and a good friend of mine, had started meeting once a week to uh, write a treatment for a, a web series we were going to produce back before Hulu and Netflix existed. Uh, we were going to produce something and put it on YouTube. 
you know, it was very unrealistic. It was uh, the the con- the high concept uh, was Lost meets Battlestar Galactica, and so uh, we had this, and I I had this treatment, and I just couldn't get my head around it enough to really t- start telling stories in that universe. So I decided to write a book, and then I, I wrote the book, and when I published it, I made the now I guess iconic mistake of putting the words uh, book one of three on the cover. <laughs> I don't know why I did that, uh, but over the next several years, it it was one of the, my biggest regrets until I actually, it actually, because I did that, it forced me to eventually become the author I wanted to be. And so now I'm very grateful that I did it. <laughs> and then the Sawyer Jackson books were, by the time I wrote the third and final Citadel book, that book was written on a formula that I created called my 30-day author formula to show, to prove to myself that I could do that, write a book in 30 days. And I thought, okay, I did it once. Can I do it again? And so I wrote a completely different, my, my approach was I want to write a completely different story in 30 days to see if I can do it again. And so I wrote a YA fantasy uh, story called Sawyer Jackson in the Long Land, built on a whole bunch of stuff I'd been daydreaming about, thinking about all my life, all the way back to when I was a kid. And then uh, I did that in 30 days, and I thought, well, I'll do another one. I wrote a sequel to that in 30 days. Uh, actually, both of them were each written in 15 days and published 15 days later. And then I wrote the third one uh, a couple of years later because I, by that point I had started writing thrillers and I'd started doing some other stuff. So <laughs> I, uh, I did get a little sidetracked from finishing that series for a while, but it's, it's done now, and, it, and people seem to really enjoy it, but... Yeah, so I've got around 40 books out. So it's, it's, you know, I figured out something, you know, I figured out what I wanted to do and I started doing it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, how can, uh, how can people uh, interact with you? How can they find you online? Man, the easiest way is always going to be kevintumlinson.com, uh, because that's, that's the home of all things Kevin. Um, you can find my website there. I mean, my website, my author site there, my book pages. Uh, you can find the uh, podcast if you're an author and you're interested in that. Even if you're not an author, that that I, I try to build that show in such a way that it could benefit anyone who listens. Uh, very positive, you know. I like to keep things very positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it is. I think it is. I think yeah. it does appeal to more than just writers. I hope so. Yeah, that was the goal. And then, you know, from there you can get to social media and that sort of thing. So, Great. All right. What's the book that you're reading from today? I picked a selection from uh, The Girl in the Mayan Tomb, the most current Dan Kotler book, and uh, I, I thought I'd read Chapter 8, which is a challenging chapter, by the way, because it's got like three or four different characters with a range of voices. We'll see. We'll see how Kevin does with this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and you're going to do voices, right? I'm going <laughs> to approximate voices. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> we'll see. <clears throat> so, all right. Well, hey, Kevin, I... Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming in here. And, and uh, as an author, I really appreciate all the work you do for, for other independent authors out there. And, uh, you know, I look forward to talking to you again sometime and, of course, hearing you every week on your show. Man, I appreciate it. Thanks for being out there and supporting it. And uh, I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, without any further ado, we have Kevin Tomlinson and the Dan Cutler Archaeological Thriller. So this is, like I said, an excerpt from uh, The Girl in the Mayan Tomb, uh, the, the fourth Dan Kotler thriller, and this is from Chapter 8 of that book. 
It was five in the morning when Kotler and Denzel loaded themselves into Graham's Range Rover. He had procured three travel mugs filled with what Kotler mentally labeled adequate coffee, and which both Kotler and Denzel appreciated for its caffeine, if not for its quality. Thanks to the one-hour difference between Eastern and Central time, the early hours didn't quite feel as early to either of them. Sleep had been a little rough, but they were far from groggy. Things were starting on a good note. That would change. The first half of the journey hadn't been so bad, with mostly paved roads and only the occasional pothole to jolt them. Eventually, though, the roads thinned to mere slender and worn dirt tracks, cutting through barely tame brush. These signs of modest civilization eventually devolved altogether into a near-invisible trail through jungle growth. Tangles of vines often intruded into the lane, limiting visibility to inches in any direction that wasn't strictly forward or backward. More than once, they had been forced to stop and move a fallen tree or some other obstacle from the road. Graham cautioned them to be alert. There are all sorts of deadly natural dangers here, he said in a dire tone. But there are also gorillas in the region. Be cautious and be careful of traps. Denzel had nodded along with this advice and had answered by ensuring his weapon had a round chambered, ready for use. Kyler, of course, was once again short of a weapon of his own, a chronic condition that he was slowly growing tired of experiencing. Here in the wilds of Central America, he would be foolish to go unarmed for long. Graham agreed and informed Kotler that there were multiple handguns stashed throughout the Range Rover. Kotler found one attached by Velcro under his seat. He held it up, giving Graham a quizzical look. You can never be too careful, Graham shrugged, or too well armed. Kotler looked at Denzel, who had a disapproving expression. The agent shook his head. You know what you're doing. Just don't shoot me. The paperwork is brutal. Kotler chuckled, chambered around, and tucked the weapon into his belt at the small of his back, ensuring its safety was engaged. Not a recommended way to carry a weapon, he knew, but it did keep it out of the way as he and Denzel assessed the current obstacle. A tree, falling across the road, showing signs of natural breakage at least. It didn't feel like a trap, but the two of them remained cautious as they approached, scanning the tree line on either side of the path, alert to any movement. Together they hefted the top end of the tree, pivoting on its ragged, broken trunk, sliding it out of the road to clear the way for Graham to drive through. This, or something very similar, was repeated several times as they bumped their way along the trail, and it made for sore and aching muscles in their backs, shoulders, and arms. It made the journey all the more grueling, particularly as they began to keenly feel every jolt from the road as they traveled at a snail's pace ever deeper into the jungle. They hadn't encountered any crocodiles or snakes, at least, and best news of all, no signs of gorillas lying in wait. All of these stops and the plodding pace added to their travel time, however. What would have been a three-hour drive as the crow flies was now inching into six hours. The wisdom of leaving at sunup was increasingly apparent. They would not want to make any part of this journey in darkness. When they did finally break through the jungle growth into a bright and sun-dappled clearing, all three men were visibly relieved. Kotler hadn't realized just how tense he and his companions had become, making sporadic leaps from obstacle to obstacle in the jungle, without so much as a clear view of the sky most of the way. It could be a nerve-wracking experience to find yourself surrounded by unrelenting nature, particularly when you are aware that most of the life around you saw you as either a threat or as food. 
The clearing they entered wasn't a natural phenomenon, of course. Like the trail they had used as a road, the clearing had been initially carved from the jungle by Graham and his team. They had hacked their way through the relentless growth with far more than the occasional roadside obstacle to deal with. And though it was true that they had equipment that made short work of the tangles and fallen trees, progress to this point would have been torturous. Kotler had done treks like that in his time, pushing through seemingly impenetrable natural barriers by sheer force of will, occasionally aided with tractors and front loaders. Those journeys weren't his favorite. He preferred getting to a site that was already in motion, of course. Who wouldn't? All the same, and despite any sense of rivalry that may have been felt with him and Dr. Graham, Kotler respected men like Graham for their perseverance and determination. Any arrogance they may exude was, at the very least, well-earned. It took a special sort of person to push through jungle like this just to get to some abandoned building made of stone with no guarantee that anything good would come of it. A special sort of person. Kotler couldn't help but wonder then, what had driven Maggie Hamilton out to this place? They parked the Range Rover near a small fleet of other vehicles, including a couple of surplus military transports. There was something about these that seemed familiar to Kotler. In particular, when he saw that one of the transports had an array of bullet holes in the door, it nagged at him. Perhaps he'd seen it before. Then again, he'd seen many military transports and many bullet-riddled doors over the years, his, somehow, had become a career in which bullets and surplus military resources were abundant. They left their gear in the Range Rover for the moment and ventured into the camp, where dozens of green canvas tents were set up on pallets, giving them a few inches of rise above the rough-hewn ground. These would help keep out runoff from rain, more importantly help to deter snakes and other animals from entering the tents, Cots and continual vigilance would do the rest. Checking boots and blanket rolls and anything else before sinking in for a night's rest was always a good idea in the jungle. The collection of tents formed a ring around a central area where containers of water were elevated and mounted to the wooden stands, their spigots accessible to anyone who needed to refill a canteen or other container. There was a large ring of stones in the middle of this space where a fire had burned down to ash and embers ready to be stoked back to life as night drew closer. A large home-built smoker was set up in one end of the camp, surrounded by collapsible tables covered in cooking supplies and utensils. Ice chests filled with food and beer and other essentials rested on the ground close at hand. It was a fairly comfortable camp environment, Kotler thought, and the men seemed comfortable enough as well, though they all showed signs of being continuously alert and aware the men had watched as Graham led the way back into the camp proper, and Kotler had picked up the slight tension that eased from hands when reaching for weapons, resting beside each man as he sat on an otherwise casual repose. They recognized Graham, but they were ready for anything. There were a few men on patrol as well, brandishing rifles, looking very serious about their jobs, which was a comfort given the high rate of guerrilla activity in the region. Others were clearly off-duty, or at least at ease, chatting quietly and amiably amongst themselves as they ate lunch. Each man was dressed much like Denzel, jungle fatigues, but olive green t-shirts, and many of them wearing wide-brim hats that had mosquito netting rolled up and ready to deploy. Nighttime would be the domain of the insects, Kotler knew. In fact, plenty of repellent mosquito netting himself. Well, shave my balls and call me Dixie. A loud and boisterous voice said from behind them, as Kotler and the others stood assessing the scene. 
They turned, and Kotler grinned, shaking his head and hardly able to believe his eyes. Sarge. Will Sarge Canfield was a tall and well-muscled bulk of a man with shocking red hair and a handlebar mustache that had grown in length and impressiveness since Kotler had last seen him. To Kotler, he resembled the overly masculine man meme, an image of a mustachioed and bare-chested boxer or a circus strongman from the 20s, bearing his fists and saying typically manly things, things Kotler mused that Sarge himself was likely to say. Sarge and his men had headed security at the dig site in Pueblo, where Dr. Eloy Coelho had discovered his infamous medallion. This, in turn, had led to the discovery of a Viking presence in Central North America, far inland from the northeastern coast of North America where a Viking presence had been established. The discovery had triggered a series of events that put millions of lives in jeopardy. It had been the first time Kotler and Denzel had worked together and had essentially set the tone for the relationship, for good or ill. Mostly good, by Kotler's estimate. Kotler had great respect for Sarge and his team, who helped put down a serious threat to national security as all part of the job. He was a coarse but honorable man, though the emphasis could well be placed on coarse. What in the five burrows of hipster hell are you two dingles doing way out here? Sarge grinned around an unlit cigar, clamping his powerful hand on the cutler's own in a painful but oddly comforting grip. He turned and repeated the gesture with Denzel. We're investigating Miss Hamilton's death, Denzel said. Cutler noted he did not mention Arpouche or the potential of a biological weapon. They hadn't discussed it, but Cutler took this as confirmation that the details behind their being here were eyes only. I knew they were sitting in the feds, Sarge said, shaking his head. I had no idea it'd be you two. He looked at Codler, sizing him up and down. What about you, Squint? I hear you're working for the FBI now. Consulted, Codler smiled. Got a gun and everything. For now, Denzel said. Sarge chuckled. Well, good deal, he said. It's not a bad idea to be armed out here. We've had one or two tussles with the locals, mostly the boys who had this place set aside for their own personal hidey hole. How many tussles? Denzel asked. Three so far, Sarge said. First one came right after Dr. Graham here and went to the States. Graham was standing just to the side, and at the mention of his name, he stepped forward. Was anyone hurt? Sarge shook his head. No, I don't think they were expecting us that first night, or they weren't expecting us to be so prepared, he grinned. Scared the shit out of them, and they left. The next two runs came over the next few weeks. I've had patrols and perimeter guards running since we got here, and skirmishes tend to happen out in the weeds. He waved a hand at the jungle. Good thing we sent all the civvies home, though. I don't have the resources to babysit you folks. This last was clearly meant as a warning, Cotler decided. While Agent Denzel might not be a civvy by Sarge's estimate, Cotler and Graham certainly were, and the warning was that he would do his best to protect the site and anyone in it but their personal protection was largely up to their own judgment and skills. Cutler had done a fair amount of weapons and personal combat training over the years and felt confident enough that he could take care of himself. He wasn't certain about Graham, but the man seemed capable and was at least at ease here. Only time would tell then. They were given a tour of the camp proper, with Sarge and one of his men pointing out the galley, which was primarily the smoker and ice chests, and the latrine, which was literally a large hole with a mound of dirt and a shovel near at hand. It was well away from the camp and the food, but it had been encircled with walls made from vines, saplings, and felled trees, and a short fence of barbed wire around its perimeter. 
Don't want to be caught with your pants at your ankles, Sarge said solemnly. Kyler and Denzel could only agree. In time, they were also shown to where they could unload their gear and bunk out for the evening. Tent space was at a premium, so Kotler and Denzel once again found themselves as bunk mates. They at least had their own cots, a fact that Denzel celebrated with an acknowledging grunt. They had spent half the day driving and laboring their way through the jungle, but had arrived at the base camp in the early afternoon. We have enough light left in the day to survey some of the city, Graham said. But I'd like us to save the tomb for the morning. It takes a bit of time to get inside, and I hadn't had the opportunity to search and clear all the potential traps. But when I was here last, I cleared a path to where Miss Hamilton's body was found. The forensic team took that as they entered and exited. How much of the tomb were they able to explore during their sweep? Denzel asked. There's a roped-off area in that outer chamber just outside the tomb proper, Graham said. There are side branches to the corridor leading in. Those haven't been explored. We didn't realize those passages were there until work lights were brought in with the forensic team. Doubtless Hamilton would have used any of them, but it's it's possible. And the tomb itself, Cotler said, still sealed? Graham looked at him, and Cotler could see a sort of electricity in his expression. As far as I know, it has never been opened. Not from lack of trying on Miss Hamilton's part. He shook his head, clearly picturing how frantic Maggie must have been as she desperately searched for a way out. We found no tools, so I believe she must have used stones or some found objects to chip away at the edges of the door, but it's clear she never made it through. I haven't had the opportunity to search for a trigger. I don't know how to open it just yet. This isn't an archaeological expedition, Denzel reminded them. Kotler and Graham both looked at him and nodded separately. Maybe not, Graham said, but it's obvious that Miss Hamilton was desperate to get into that tomb. Possible her only goal was escape, but... We can't know that for sure, can we? Denzel sighed. You sound like Kotler, he said, a note of dismay in his voice. Kotler chuckled, and Graham said nothing. It's possible, even likely, that he did not find that statement to be a compliment, which amused Kotler all the more. There was more at stake here than the potential of discovering Veracocha's remains. It was true. But Kotler knew that Graham's primary concern was not Maggie's death, nor the presence of a biological weapon. Graham was on the hunt for a god. Kotler didn't blame him, but there were two gods at play here, and one of them was a god of death. Hey, hey, what did I tell ya? That was Kevin Tomlinson reading Girl on the Mayan Tomb. The book is available now. I have a copy of my Amazon cart, and I think you should do the same. If you want to reach out to Kevin, make sure you go to his website, kevintomlinson.com. He's also on all social media sites, and he has an Amazon page as well. Uh, you can go to our site if you need to contact us on Facebook or via samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com, and we will talk to you again next week with another author and another sample chapter. Bye.